Hey, hey, welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford, and this is Financial Health February. So, so excited about today's episode. So excited for last week's episode with my good friend, Jamie Bell, all about contracts. And today we are getting even more into the nitty gritty of finances with Brenda Smith, who is a lawyer, a financial expert, and oh my gosh, just absolute font of knowledge when it comes to talking about all things finance. And let me tell you, this episode goes everywhere. I loved, we got to talk all about the sort of mindset around finance. And I mean, I'll be honest, I get a little personal here. It goes a little deep in my childhood. Uh, But honestly, I bet you when you listen to this, you're going to have a very similar memory that sparks as we talk through the stuff. But what I appreciate is that, uh, you know, Brenda and I didn't just stick to mindset. I think mindset is so hugely important. But I think unless you're backing up mindset with really practical, tangible advice, it's not really that helpful, especially with finance stuff. And I have to admit right now, it does feel like a lot of uh, a lot of people are out there on the Internet uh, kind of doing all of this, like, you know, fix your financial mindset. And it's very self-help guru-y. And I do think there's a ton of value to it, especially, you know, to get kind of started down this journey. And if you're someone like me who's really stressed at the idea of finances, however, uh, I think we can't stop there. And I think the problem is a lot of these things kind of stop there after you're feeling very raw, raw about your finances, then they're like, okay, and you're done. Um, so I think this is a really great kind of primer on all things finance from the actual uh, tangible side and what you need to be doing as a small business or thinking about as an entrepreneur or solopreneur uh, versus, you know, the the actual like how we think about money. So I absolutely love this. There's so much great stuff in here. And uh, definitely make sure you head over to Brenda's Instagram and check out her upcoming online class with Feisty, uh, Get Fit With Your Finances. So that's going to be starting in March. We're going to talk more about it, but she's going to get in way more in depth than, you know, with all the stuff that we talked about today. So without further ado, enjoy this chat with Brenda Smith. Brenda, welcome to the Business of Fitness podcast. I am so glad slash terrified that you're here. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. I do tend to have that impact, or at least the subject does. I don't terrify people, but talking about money does. So yeah, yeah. No, of course you don't terrify people. The The thing that I remember about you from Outspoken is you in a fabulous jumpsuit that made me have to go out and buy a jumpsuit, um, <laughs> which may or may not have been a great financial decision on my part. I almost wore that today. And then I'm like, well, it's like 10 degrees outside. So maybe I don't have to. We could have been on our matching jumpsuits. Darn it. (laughs) All right. But we're not here to talk about fashion. We're here to talk about money. So let's just start with your quick like elevator pitch bio. How did you end up in this space of helping, you know, small businesses, entrepreneurs figure out what the heck with our finances? Mm, a great question. And in a, you know, it, it seems it's an unusual thing for me to do, but yet at the same time, it makes complete sense. So my academic background is I have a master's in business with a focus in human resources, and then I have a um, juris doctorate, right? So I, I have a, a law degree and I practice as an attorney for years. Um, but my focus has always been on the employment side of things, the employment law side of things, and helping businesses um, with their risk management profile, with all of their employment law issues. And, you know, the way life happens at one point while I was general counsel for a college in Idaho, 
um, I had somebody come to me and ask me if I could help them with their risk management stuff and with their do some business consulting to them. And, you know, I said, sure, why not? And that sort of continued to progress in my first business that my first business that I owned, I, I left the college, started a consulting practice, and I learned to just say yes when somebody needed help. So I was giving a presentation at the National Manufacturers Association. Um, so big conference, you know, up on stage, like 5,000, 10 people in the audience. And I was like the talking legal head, right? So I'm up there doing the yada, yada, yada. These are the things you have to worry about. These are the things to look for. And um, a week later, Boeing called me and they said, we were in the room when you spoke and we have a problem. Our largest supplier of parts was generated by ICE, immigration consult, you know, Im the, Im all the immigration stuff, right? Just rated by ICE, it was in the early 2000s. Can you help? And uh, we can talk about this more as we talk about things that entrepreneurs should do. I just said, yes. I just knew that, okay, yeah, I know how to look stuff up. I'm a lawyer. I know the basics about immigration. I know I can help you, right? And that started a very successful consulting business where I went around all over the country to, to, I had the largest apple grower in the country, large pear grower, cherry growers, chili growers. Like I ended up in the agriculture space for these large companies, helping them with all of their immigration and compliance issues. And then I got a chance to go behind the scenes, right? Because as an HR person, as an employment attorney, I knew all about how to get them set up for Department of Labor audits and all of those different things. And you, and so by doing that kind of work, I really developed an acumen on how to help small, medium-sized businesses. Some of them were small businesses. I had election businesses that were 100 people that had an issue, and others were businesses of 10,000 employees. So it sort of varied. The problems are the same. It's just the scope of the law, right? Like the law may apply on one side to another side. And so, so that's how I really, you know, I got started running my own thing that way. And it was just somebody asked and I said, yes, that, I mean, that's really what I did. Somebody asked and I said, yes, um, I had a bit of a plan, but not too much of a plan. I was like the perfect example of don't do, do as I say, not as I did. Right. You know, and we can talk about some of those things. But um, then I took that knowledge and was recruited out of the blue by a college president at a college in, at, in the Endicott College. And I knew the president from like, you know, a bank board, something I was on with him. And he came up to me and said, I want to start an entrepreneur center. I want our, our students to be able to start their businesses. And can you do it? for me. So mm. I, again, I said, yes, sure. Yep. I, I've taught for years. I've never started an academic center, but I have worked in colleges for a long time and I've helped businesses. Let's say yes. So I said, yes. And I went in and started this center for them. And now, oh my God, it's still going like it's 10, 12 years later. See, it's 2011 is when I went there. So it's still going. We set up 
um, grant money, grant funding for students to see businesses. It was just, and it was all in that Boston entrepreneur space. So it was just, I mean, we got funding from iRobot, Colin Engel. I mean, it was just wonderful, right? And it was great to help these young students start their businesses. They came in much like some of your audience, right? They came in with an idea and wanting to start a business. And what do I do? And do I write a business plan? And who do I talk to? And who can I be mentored by? And what do I need to do with my finances? All of those things. We set up a program from scratch that went from an idea and I was literally in a broom closet as my office, literally in a broom closet. And I went from a broom closet to an entire like we had this huge wing in a new school of business and it just grew and it morphed and it was just so much fun. I love that. I also love that now we're talking about having your uh, under the under the stairs uh, closet for your podcasting. <laughs> so we've come full circle. <laughs> I've come full circle. I'm back to going under a closet again, but we're in a closet under the stairs. But then, you know, I it's that passion for helping businesses Many businesses get into trouble because they don't, they just don't know, right? And so from a finance perspective, fast forward to how the heck do you get into doing work and helping small businesses on the monetary side? It's just a continuation. That's all it is. You're just looking at, at a risk around money, but some, some of the money stuff ties back to the employment stuff. It t- ties in insurance, right? I do a lot of insurance work also because I have learned the hard way. Um, and I have become, you know, as you get older, you decide where you want to spend your time. <laughs> and I become way more passionate about wanting to help, especially female businesses, because we find as we find in our space and all the other podcasts from Feisty, we are just so treated differently. I, you know, it just ends having the resources to be able to help people. I mean, when I was at Outspoken, I had some in the audience come up to me afterwards and say, you're the first person who has talked about this in a way that I understand. And it's just, it's, it's because it is such a gender, it's, it's, we are taught financial stuff in a very male dominant way, and in a way that is very scary. And I say that having partnered and and do training with big financial firms that train me on, on products and stuff, right? It's a bro culture. It is, they talk about football. If I'm a football fanatic, but most of the people, most of the women that are my clients, if I walked in and talked football with them, they would glaze over. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, I was actually just reading something where it was talking about when we talk about women's finances, so often it sort of starts and stops at like budgeting for sort of like your household slash your life, even even in like the most modern of like places, or maybe about negotiating for like a raise or for higher income. But like those are the two places women's finance ever goes or like finance in like women's magazines and you know, women's specific media. And that's it. There's no discussion of, you know, the business laws or investments or any of that stuff. And what's interesting, and I cannot give you the exact number, I don't know the exact percentage, but in the financial services world, the majority of women who inherit money are widows, um, 
change financial advisors within the first year of their husband dying. Why? Because the majority of their husbands have managed the finances and are working with male financial advisors. That's it. That's why. And even in that financial services model, they talk to women from a male perspective. And that that is 100 percent like what my passion is, is, you know, I'm a I'm an educator by by trade, by by love. Right. And I just take I take that skill of being able to talk with people and translate a very it's a very difficult and emotional topic for people. And I think what makes it difficult, Molly, is the emotion around it. Yes. You know, numbers are numbers. That's the stuff I've learned is I may not like what my numbers are telling me, but my numbers tell me the truth. You know, I love spreadsheet. I used to calm down. My therapist laughed at me because when I would have anxiety in the middle of the night, I would get up and balance my checkbook. She's like, you're the only the only client I have who quits her anxiety by balancing your checkbook. Right. And I'm like, it's just that. No, but it's just the discipline because the numbers tell the truth. Yep. Yep. And I mean, that leads to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for for women in particular, I think we are more prone to being scared of money because partially like what it means for for our relationships and for you know everything else in our lives and there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hung up on it but i mean for especially like entrepreneur types women who want to start small businesses you've been you know talking to a lot of them lately why are we so scared of our finances like what the heck that's a that's a very fair question and i'll tell you I will answer the question and I will give you an example. Okay. So why are we so scared? Personally, from my own personal experience and from observing and talking with so many women and so many people in general, it's it's shame in our culture. We are a culture. Remember, I was a VP of HR. We we I negotiated salaries for people all day long, right? People won't talk about their salaries. We're in a culture where now we're finally getting laws that make make salaries have to be public. But even those public salaries, the companies are lying about, right? Yep. I mean, it's yeah. Don't even get me started on that. But we are, you know, I think about Brene Brown, right? We the shame researcher. Well, we are yeah. absolutely a country that has a large amount of shame about money. Up and down, right? Like both ends of it. Both ends of it. There's a lot of shame about being successful. There's a lot of shame about not being successful. On top of that, layer on the complexity of being a woman who is consistently told that our voices need to be quiet, that we cannot ask for the, what we are worth. We cannot talk about what we want to make. We can't, you know, and I mean, one of the things I often say to people is we are more willing to get naked in front of absolute strangers than we are willing to talk about money. hundred percent. We will, we will put a picture up on Tinder, but we will not talk with that a person about money. What do you make? What are your bills like? And, and as a business owner, you have to become comfortable even with just talking with yourself 
and your closest people around you because you have to get to the point that you you are comfortable talking about it. But um, I want, I don't know if you remember, you may, you were in the room, but I think what I have found to be a very helpful exercise for me and people that, that I work with um, is really identifying first that money is emotional for us and that it has a childhood history, oftentimes, oftentimes traumatic in a way, right? Like the first conversation about money or being growing up without money, all of those things. Money comes with history for us and it's very, very charged. Um, I, it's rare that I meet somebody that doesn't have a charged emotional relationship with money. You know, it, it like there's probably somebody out there, but it's very rare. I have found in one of the exercises I do in some of my workshops or when I do presentations is I help people drop into some money mindfulness and just to see, you know, where that money, where your money story, what is your money story and where that money story sits in your body. And, um, yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it's something I do. And if, if, if people listen to this and they want it, they're like curious about it. All you really do is get quiet, right? Get really quiet. And it doesn't even have to be a full five minutes. It could be simple as like two minutes, but you get really quiet, just drop in and just relax yourself. And as you're relaxing, you know, you take your seat, you quiet everything down, quiet all the noise in your head, just like a regular meditation. And then when you're ready, you conjure up one of the first images that you have of money in your mind. Remember the first, your first money memory. And that first money memory, mine is at age six. But bring up your first money memory. And once you have that memory, if it's when you were a little girl or a little boy or you're a teenager, when you have that memory, now tap in and name what emotion are you feeling? Are you feeling embarrassed? Are you feeling shame? Are you feeling joy? Maybe somebody has a joyful memory. You know, what is that memory? And identify where it sits in your body. It, which chakra, which space in your body is it sitting? Is it sitting in your heart? Is it your sacral chakra? Is it in your throat? You know, where is it? And just identify that and see where that is. And as you see it, don't judge it. You just feel it, right? And then for me and for the people that I've taken through this, oftentimes... I did it. I, I had mentioned this at the at outspoken, but I did this with a group of Gen Zer that were all like super successful at Spotify, but all of them that were making like two hundred thousand dollars a year at twenty four years old, all were nervous about money. And when I took this through that this exercise, it was like, and I asked them to come back and share, and the there were like, you know, I was raised with shame or never thought that I would have enough, but then I could, this exercise helped me feel that 
realize that I carry this with me. However, you can release that. And the key to releasing it is identifying that it sits with you, right? So when you feel that icky, oh, I can't, I can't ask that client for my true rate. Then you're aware as to why, because maybe you were told you shouldn't ask for that. You know, your women can't ask for that. You know? So um, it really, I really think that it is a cultural thing for us. And it's also very identified with what are we taught from our families and without awareness, without bringing awareness to it, because the key to money is a, this awareness of the emotion and B, you just continue to learn more and then you feel better, right? You continue to learn more and with confidence grows confidence. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's as you were talking through that naturally, like I'm doing this exercise as you're talking about it. And it's funny because, you know, I've told you that for me, money brings up so much like stress and anxiety and I think like looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, my first memory is being probably like five or six and being at the gas station with my mom and like digging through like the seat pockets to try to find like change. And I think it was just that she forgot her purse. Like it was not like a, we were not like so incredibly like broke that that was like all we could do. But I remember her being so stressed and anxious because we like needed to get gas to get home and she didn't have her wallet. So we're like digging for money. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is why I always think that I like might not have enough. This is why I'm like always panicked about like checking my account and like what my tax bill is going to be in any of that. (laughs) It's such a wild connection. It is. And I have a very similar story. And I was raised for the beginning of my life by a single mom. Right. And, and, up till age six or seven. And she did a, a pretty good job of making sure that we didn't feel tremendously stressed and that we had things like, you know, I had no idea that we went to Dairy Queen for the 10 cent kitty cones because it was all she could afford. And I love Dairy Queen thanks to that. Right. But, but at the same time, I continued to hear throughout my life, we may run out of money even mm-hmm. though that wasn't going to be an issue, but it had been a fear of hers because of her experience. So guess what? I'm always thinking. And sometimes I get myself really close to that edge. And I know that more is coming, but I'm like, you know, almost it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I want to almost continue to, to live with thought. And you have to have awareness to change, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So good. So good. So I think, you know, that's one of those things that, again, you know, if you're talking to most like men focused financial stuff, they're just going to kind of skip over that and get right into the 401ks and all that jazz. Well, they go right into the 401ks. They they totally miss the mark. They have they have an opportunity to have conversations and understand where the person is coming from. You know, a lot of what I do when I speak to my clients is, you know, a lot of the work that I do is I help small, I'm not always setting up four ways, rarely am I, but I'm having conversations about what it is that you have. Why do you want more? Tell me more about this. What are you, you know, you have to learn to ask, ask and listen, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is often missed in the, in the financial world, which is, I think the other reason that I have seen that so many female business owners, female entrepreneurs, um, get nervous about money is that it's always been ta- they've always been talked to not talked with they've been talked at 
And even if you look at some of the online financial advisor, you know, the finance, these places that are trying to focus on women, they come at women from a male model. They just, because they came from a male model. I mean, Susie Orman, she's great at what she does. She comes at it from a pretty, you know, more male-like model. Okay, here's the deal. You want to take control of your health, of your life, but honestly, who has the time to go into the doctor, get the requisition for all the blood work, and then go to the lab and actually have that blood drawn, then wait weeks for the doctor to get back to you with the results? No, absolutely not. Inside Tracker is the way to go. And bonus, you can do it from the comfort of your own home with their mobile blood draw. It is so easy. Oh my gosh, so convenient, so safe, so reliable. All you have to do is when you order your Inside Tracker panel, you actually just add the mobile blood draw option and then boom, suddenly you have a lab tech at your house at a time that works for you to take your blood. We did this last month and honestly, it was the easiest experience I have ever had with blood draws in my life. So convenient. And then the turnaround on the results is so quick and instantly you get this whole view of what is going on inside you with all of the important biomarkers that you need as an athlete, as an entrepreneur, as a go-getter. So definitely, definitely check them out. Save time in your day, add time to your life with Inside Tracker's mobile blood draw. And if you visit insidetracker.com backslash feisty, you get 20% off today. That's insidetracker.com backslash feisty to get 20% off today. kind of shifting into that like small business mindset, because we know, you know, we are both at Outspoken. We know so many women who listen to this are thinking they want to start their own businesses. And I think the financial part is the big stopping point, because I think we all panic about what are, what are like legal things we need to do? What, you know, just like, do we need bank accounts? Do we need this? Do we need this? We just get very stressed about like not making a mistake. And I think that makes us completely freeze and not do anything. So, um, I mean, I don't know if we want to come at it from the negative and go, what are the common mistakes that we're making as we're like starting our small businesses? Or if we want to go with like, what are like the smart practices when starting our small businesses? Uh, I hate to go negative, but negative tends to be the easier one to like understand. Well, you can, you can ask the, what are the mistakes? And the answer can be, what are the things to put in place? So you don't make that mistake. Right. So. I would say the number one thing, and this is the piece of advice I got when I started my first le- my legal practice. When I started that consulting business, I mentioned the immigration one. The first piece of advice I, I was given, and it is one I give over and over and over again, is cash is king. I did not understand what that meant until I ran out of cash. And, and what this means is, is that in order to keep your business afloat, yourself afloat. So for me, and there may be listeners out there that are in the same situation, um, I am, I, I have my business and I'm the only one. My dog is not bringing in any income and there is no spouse, right? So, so, and you know, my parents are still alive. So whatever inheritance is there is not going to happen for a while. I cannot rely on it. I have to rely on me. And 
I do a lot of bootstrapping. If you know what the term bootstrap means, and if if people don't, what it, it's a term you hear a lot in small business and entrepreneur. It's basically funding yourself, pulling yourselves up by the bootstraps, and um, you know, cash is king is the hell from not having to bootstrap all the time. Cash is king is making sure that you have enough to run your business. And the biggest mistake a lot of a lot of small business people make other than overanalyzing is they underestimate the amount of cash they need in their business. Right? I mean that that's the thing is you underestimate the amount of cash and so you know they they maybe have heard that they need to keep three to six months in the bank. You know, what should I have? You should have six months of operating expenses and understand what those operating expenses are. Understand that, like, for me, I'm operating my life and I'm operating my business. So what are those operating expenses, right? And that's, I would say, the cat not, uh, not having enough cash. So can you do, right, is make sure that you do have those resources. If you know that you want to go out on your own and do, do a plan, plan to start having money in the, in, you know, in the bank. And look, I have met many successful business owners that couldn't make the plan. They lost their job immediately and turned around and started the next day. And that's great because, you know, a necessity is the mother of invention, right? But so there are times where you're not going to have that six months aside or that three months aside. But once you do get started, make sure you continue to have operating reserves because you never know. My first business I had started in 2006. Well, what happened in 2008? Right. I want to play like the womp womp noise here. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Now I was lucky. I, I, my business wasn't really hit in 2008. The hit came later. So I had enough to go through it because of the kind of clients I had, but you, you know, as you start your business, if you're starting with six months of reserve, make sure you start having reserve. Mm-hmm. That's the number one thing. That's the number. And and the second thing that I see, and this will help you have more reserve, charge enough. Oh, my gosh. Again, for the people in the back. Women do not charge enough. They don't. It, it, there is, again, I cannot pull up the reference immediately, but there is study after study that one of the things that women business owners, they undercharge. They, and... Think about this. It's your time and your expertise. Price is only an issue in the absence of value. Mm-hmm. Value yourself. The services that you are providing, if your listeners are coaches or, or I mean, there's all kinds of different businesses that we, we've seen in this space, in this community. No matter what it is, you need to make sure that you ask for what you're worth. And by asking for what you're worth, then you also, A, tell the world, I'm a professional at this, right? And B, you are able to really grow your business and those reserves. So this, you know, I'll give you an example because it's hard, right? You may have people listening. Okay, well, I'm new to this. 
I don't know if I should, what should I charge in the marketplace? I don't know if my coaching, should, whatever it is, right? So in, I don't know, it was like 2005, right before I, I started my business full-time, I was an attorney, I was living in Idaho, and I went for my first consulting job on the side, right? It was a little side hustle, and, and, and somebody had come to me and said, hey, can you do a sexual harassment investigation for a client of mine, right? Can can you, it was a, an interesting, can you do a sexual harassment investigation for one of my manufacturing clients? So I put in a proposal to him, comes back to me. I don't know what it was. At that point, it must have been like $200 an hour or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was like average lawyer rate at that point, right? And he came back to me and he said, well, I got a proposal from, you know, an HR manager in town who will do it for, you know, 60 bucks an hour, whatever it was, it was a lot less. I looked right at him and I said, Jeff, you know, the choice is yours. You want a former attorney general, assistant attorney general who is hard educated lawyer. This is what it costs. The choice is yours, but this is, you are paying for my expertise, my education and my experience. And this is what it costs you. He came back the next day and contracted with me. But I didn't hesitate. I didn't hesitate. I just said, and was I nervous? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You have to, you have to make sure you charge enough. Remember you are worth it. And then deliver on it. I mean, that's the other thing is deliver on it. You grow your business by marketing by word of mouth and by delivering on what you promise. I had another client, man, you were expensive when you, you know, it was a large apple grower. Your quote was high, but you promised that you would deliver and I could call it high. And I took you up on it. I called any time to make sure that you really stuck to what you said you were going to do. And I did. And there been a client since 2006 because I promised them, you know, I deliver on my promise. And so as you're the audience, think about it. You're starting your business. Have confidence in what it is that you do charge enough and deliver on what you promise. And that will help grow your business. So you have money in reserves. (laughs) Like that pretty much boils it down. That's the, that's the quote card here. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, And it's funny to, the hilarious thing is I was about to give an example where it's 50 bucks an hour compared to the 200. Um, <laughs> because, you know, this is where we're at in 2023, which is very upsetting. Uh, but so I was thinking about this and, you know, I know a lot of people kind of come to that like $50 mark. So I'm just going to use that as our example here. But say you're going to charge 50 bucks an hour for stuff. Thing is, realistically, you can really only work sick or charge for like, say, seven of the eight hours of your day because you're going to spend at least an hour where you're invoicing other clients or emailing other clients or pitching to people to get paid the $50 or do, you know, the client acquisition calls. So you're already not making that like 400 bucks a day that you think you're going to make when you do the math for like what 50 bucks an hour is going to get you. Then you have to add in like now you're paying taxes out of that $50 because no one's taking them out for you. 
you're paying your insurance. No one's taking that out for you or giving you insurance. You know, you're putting money into retirement. You're paying for your computer. You're paying for your rental of your office space or wherever you are. You're paying for software. So like by the time you actually add, like bring those all into the equation, you suddenly start realizing that that $50 an hour is actually way more like $25 an hour that you're actually like taking. And you're like, oh, Oh no. And that's, I think, especially people who are coming from corporate and go like trying to go out on their own with small business and freelancing and any kind of entrepreneurial thing, they forget all of those other things that are kind of coming into that hourly charge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's what just like any other business, like figures out how much is it going to cost for, you know, a restaurant down the street or a pub down the street is figuring out what's charged for meal. Well, they do all those opportunity costs within there too, right? Right. So we have to do the same thing and we forget yep. like, oh, wait a minute. Just because I charge $200 an hour and then I, I it doesn't mean I'm netting $200 an hour. You know, you have to, you have to figure all of those other expenses in. And if you do that at the beginning, as you're creating your your business and figuring out what are the documents that you need to have and what do you need to keep track of, right? Those are all very important because then you actually really understand what it is like. Because what happens is a lot of people go from getting being a salary employee to run a business to completely different things. I mean it's totally different. To be to be W2 versus running your own thing. It's a hundred percent different kind of mindset. You, you don't just money doesn't just show up every two weeks. There are times where I'll get a huge check and I might not get another one for four months. Yep. Right. Depends. And you have got to back to the skill of having cash is king and having things in reserves. And you, you and you have to be able to um anticipate for that, right? And there are some unexpected things to happen in life and we, and you can put some stopgap measures in place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And to the point of maybe not getting a check for, you know, four months. It's funny. I was just uh, recording an episode with Allison Tetrick, who is doing like works with a lot of different companies now. She's awesome. And we were both saying our like most toxic trait is the sending of the emails where we start them with like, I'm so sorry to bother you but you haven't paid me in like three months. We're like, why do we say we're sorry? Like, <laughs> like what is wrong with us? No. You know, so, so the other thing too, and I learned this early on, and these are some, I mean, and some of these are just like, you know, this is way in the weeds and I don't want us to have to go way in the weeds, but I learned early on the value of pain. And the reason I bring it up is because you mentioned that calculating out it, your 40 hours a week times, you know, $50 an hour. No, 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 no. Don't think like an hourly employee. Do retainer projects. Do things where they, you know, I learned that immediately is I would quote based on an entire project. Now, I would only figure out, oh, it might take me X number of hours and my rate is two or $300 an hour and this is what it is and yada, yada, yada. But I would, as a project, do it on a retainer that there's a monthly retainer. This is the work they get in exchange for that monthly retainer. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because then you are actually bringing more income in that way. Or if you're consulting or coaching, do as a total package. My sister is running a tutoring business for small kids that came about because of the pandemic. The woman is bringing in 4K a week. And she, a week. she does it um, as she said, the key for me is packages. You do packages, right? Because in packages, you begin to get money up front. And, um, but it, it, it gets back to the, it is hard to ask for what they're worth. But if you learn things like doing retainers, asking for half up front, and when you have to send that, you haven't paid me email. You, you don't need to start with the, I'm sorry. You just, you know, this is, these were the terms. The terms were half up front, half at the start, you know, half up front, half the, I, I moved to half up front and half the, the rest do the day the engagement starts. Now that's what I do corporations, right? When I do my teaching, you know, you get the link once you've paid. Yeah. Simple. I know there's so many articles and books and everything that are about like small businesses and entrepreneurial stuff. And a lot of them kind of start with a bit of that, like kind of terrifying, like bank accounts and LLCs and 401ks and IRAs and all that. What are the ones that like we really do need to think about? So I'll, I'll start with my, my story of this is that when I had first started freelancing when I was like 25, 24 or something like that. I was making like, you know, 12 grand a year. We're not talking like I could barely pay rent. Um, and I was talking to a much like older, wealthier friend who was an entrepreneur. And he's like, oh, you definitely need an LLC. You absolutely have to like, here's like the lawyer I'll set you like. So he like set this whole thing up. So next thing I know is I'm out like three grand to this lawyer. I have this LLC that I didn't really need because I had nothing to like, I had no liabilities. I was literally writing and also owned nothing. Um, and the tax headache that came with that, plus then paying extra for taxes when I was already making like nothing, I ended up dissolving it a couple of years later at the recommendation of another lawyer, which thank goodness, because then I moved to Canada, which is a whole other story for another day. But so many people, I think, get really into the weeds on that kind of stuff right off the bat and panic, either panic themselves or kind of drive themselves into a potential hole because they've gone, jumped over the line instead of, you know, queuing up. Right. That's a great question. A great point. So, I mean, I've had a similar experience. I mean, I sometimes I've, I've said to my tax lawyer, you know, he's like, you need to move to one of the tax-free states. He's telling me all these things like, don't. I live in New York. I live here because my family is here. I'm not going to up and do all of this complicated stuff right now. And I understand what you're telling me. I can't imagine if you're talking to somebody who doesn't understand the LLPs versus the LLCs and Wyoming Corporation. I mean, this stuff just give you a headache when you understand it, right? And it, it gets so overwhelming. And your example is a perfect one. Everybody thinks they have to go out and start an LLC. What they don't realize is that in, in order to do that, you need to file in your state. You have to pay for the paperwork. You go to the, the attorney general in your state or, and you to do an LLC, you really need to get the, a lawyer. It's hard to do it on your own. It's hard to go on to NOLO and do the, you know, fill, fill out all that stuff. You're right. 
what I have learned from my own experience, and I advise small business clients who wise get stuck. They get stuck. They may not start their business or they may not set things up the right way and then get nailed later on in taxes is number one thing is you can easily set yourself up as a DBA. Be a sole proprietor, right? Just to get started. And I talked about this a little bit when we were at Outspoken, but it's really easy to do. To set yourself up, and I'll tell you the advantages of just being set up even as something as basic as that, right? You set yourself up as a DBA. It means doing business as. In the state of New York, I can talk about New York. In the state of New York, you go down to your county, you go to the county clerk's office, and I don't know, the filing fee was like 10 bucks or something. You file and you get a DBA certificate. You are then an official business entity. What that allows you to do is go get a business bank account. The other mistake that I see so many business owners make is commingling of funds. They do not have separate bank accounts. So then when it comes to tax time, when it comes to all kinds of stuff, they do not have it separate. I am just fastidious about separate accounts. And I have a separate Venmo so that if I have Clients Venmo me for workshops or whatever. It goes into a separate business Venmo, right? So if you have a DBA certificate doing business as you are a an official legal entity, a sole proprietorship is a legal entity. Downside to a sole proprietorship is that if there is a legal issue, they could come directly to you, right? An LLC... An LLC, they have to go through what's called the corporate veil, and it's hard to pierce that corporate veil. But when you get started, don't worry about that. Get a sole proprietorship because at least you can get the bank account. The other thing you can do as a sole proprietor is A, you can file uh, a Schedule C when you do your taxes. So if you are actually registered as a DBA, you can actually file and take deductions for your business. Where if you're just doing a business and you haven't registered as, D, as a DBA, pat your tax forms, anything that requests any of your business entity stuff, they ask for, are you sole proprietor? And if so, need a DBA certificate. Mm-hmm. The other thing that allows you to do, Molly, is it a it gives you the ability to get access to to register yourself as a minority or woman-owned business. You can go to the small business loans, apply for grants. You, they ask when all the COVID money was coming out. I got a lot of COVID grants, not loans. I got grants because I was actually a registered business, and I registered this business. I had LLCs, but this particular one, I made sure I went down and got a DBA when I started it right away. And I have the DBA and I started a bank account for my business. And so I have legitimately all of that set up. And will I do an LLC? Yeah. And I'm lucky I can do my own paperwork, but most people can't. And it's still, it's a lot. And people get so confused. I mean, the whole thing can be so confusing, right? Or tax attorneys will tell you, um, you know, tax attorneys will say, 
oh, you need to be an LLC, an LLP, uh, all of these different things. Just start easy. Get a DBA certificate. You, then you can get a business bank account and you can get yourself recognized as a real business. Mm-hmm. That's a mistake I see people make. People don't see themselves as a business. You're a business. You're a business. It doesn't matter if you only have one client, you're a business. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, and as far as like keeping track of all of that stuff. I do. I personally do spreadsheets just because I can keep track of everything in an Excel spreadsheet, right? Um, and that's that's why I personally do that. Some people, I was thinking about this more and think about when somebody asks you, well, how should I get started with my exercise routine? And they get really complicated, right? And people look at me and like, you've done 15 Ironman. Do I need to do what you've done? No, no, you don't. Do what you know is going to get you to the gym every day or walking every day. Choose what is the thing that's going to get you out. It's the same with this. What is the easiest way for you to keep track of what is coming in and what is going out? Right. And if Excel spreadsheets are there and they are cost free, start with that. Don't. And then if you, as things get more complicated and you what you can look at Quicken or QuickBooks. And when I look at different, I'm looking at like learning management software right now. When I ana- analyze and try to determine what is the software that I want to use, I go back to sort of the skills I used when, when I was in corporate, right? When I would manage a corporate project, I would say, okay, what are the things that I really need this to do? Right. And so I just sort of use that. And I then have benchmarks that I can bench against. Same thing with choosing how are you, what you need to do. If you're just starting your business, you want to keep what's coming in. You want to keep what's going out. Right. You want to make sure that you have actuals. And you also know what am I expecting to come in? Right. So how are you going to manage? I would say what looking at your accounting bid do it based on a do it based on cash. And you can do that in an Excel spreadsheet. Right? And Excel spreadsheets you can send to your accountant or your CPA or your bookkeeper. Yeah, I think every every bookkeeper I've talked to is like or accountant has been like, please don't send me QuickBooks. Don't do that. Yeah. Just just send me an Excel spreadsheet. You know, and the other thing I would say from a software perspective, and this is from my own personal experience and then with the people that I've been working with, the other one that's really matters is a CRM, you know, a customer relationship management system. Yes. Um, the thing with a CRM is you can start an Excel, but it's hard to send emails from Excel. Right. If you want, I mean, if you start just in Excel and keeping track, but if you're going to look at spending money on anything, look at spending money on a CRM. And there are all kinds of CRMs that are out there that are inexpensive. You know, a lot of people know Salesforce, right? But Salesforce can get expensive. And you can look at other ones, like there's one that I use called Nimble. I think it's nine ninety nine a month, and there's some free ones called Zoho CRM. But looking at a customer relationship, a CRM helps you grow your business. It helps you 
keep, if you spend money on something, spend money on something that allows you to keep track of your clients. And you can use that CRM as you're looking to do your email marketing, right? And you're looking at your email marketing platforms. And again, choose something that's simple, but allows you to grow. That's what I advise when I talk to my clients is that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And then how, how much time would you say a small business person needs to be spending on their finances? I realize that's a weird question, but maybe it's more like how often should someone be sort of like checking in on their accounts or like, you know, I, every Monday will send invoices and like go through my bank account statements just to like make sure there's no weird charges and like make sure I like know what categories. Yeah. Yeah, should be checking our finances weekly. Some people check them daily. I no longer, I I no longer balance my checkbook to to deal with anxiety. But um, you know, you need to be looking at it weekly. You want, especially as your business is growing, right? Especially as you're getting more clients in, and you you know you want to make sure you know what's going in, what's going out, that you're anticipating things. You need to be checking it weekly, and just like setting up your business entity. It doesn't need to be super complicated at first. Just start with the easy things, you know, just make sure you balance sheets so you can look at assets and liabilities and you know what's coming in and what's going out and um, look at it on a regular basis. And, And like you mentioned, I think looking at your bank account and seeing if you've set up automatic debit to have things coming out automatically, don't be surprised, right? you know, make sure that there's no surprises, just like personal accounts. And sometimes if, you know, if you're doing both, right, if you're, if you're running both a business and a personal account, you know, you got to be checking them constantly, or at least every week. I cannot stress enough how important it is to check that invoices are getting paid. Like, I, I actually thought about this a while ago. And I was like, I think I've lost probably 20 grand in the last 15 years. Because there were a lot of years where I was just sort of willy-nilly sending invoices and assuming that a company was going to pay me. And I didn't write it down anywhere. Like, oh my gosh, I was, I made every mistake in the book. <laughs> and and by keeping track of me too. That's why I love doing this. I've become good at it. And I learn every day. I mean, you know, we talked, we briefly talked about taxes. I'm good at taxes because I didn't realize that when I was a 1099 and living in New York City, that the city of New York charged you 30 grand just to be a 1099 on your taxes at the end of the year. What? <laughs> Self-employment tax. I had no idea. That was a fun tax bill, right? And I, I yeah. I, I learned that because nobody teaches you this stuff. I mean, that is what is so amazing is nobody teaches you this stuff. And, you know, I want to, the, there's one other area, because you had asked me about 401ks and Roths and all of this kind of stuff, right? What the other thing I would recommend that you, that people do, right. That they do at the beginning. And it's often, it's often, left until you think, oh, I'll do that when I'm making money or take care of you. You're leaving an employer. Most people leave an employer where they're getting a 401k. They're in what I like to call income protection, which is short-term disability. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, and they have all of these things that are in place. Well, you still have to take care of you, but you no longer have things like guaranteed sick days and a 401k contribution. And you have all of those things. If somebody asks me, Brenda, I'm setting up my own business and I wanted to make sure that I set stuff up for myself. What should I do? I would say, number one, I, I would get it ways. You want to look at the side of things. What are you setting up for your retirement? And you want to look at the protecting side of things. Now, remember, I like, I like managing risk. Right? So on the investment side of things, set up a 401k single plan. Set up, it's called a SEP, right? And what a SEP is, is it's a plan, a 401k that you contribute to yourself, that you set up as a business owner. The difference between it and a Roth is in a Roth, you are limited to the amount that you can put into a Roth. You are limited to somewhere around 6,500 a year. Once you hit the age of 50, you've got catch-up amounts. It's a whole other, you know, it's a whole, you know, other hour-long podcast, how Roths work, right? But in a nutshell, Roths have a limit and you really can't borrow against them. In a single owner 401k, you can put up to 60 grand a year in a single owner 401k and you can borrow from it. You can borrow from yourself. You can use this concept called bank on yourself. So if you need capital for your business, instead of having to take out a small business loan, you can borrow from your single owner 401k. Ooh. I love that. That was a huge tool. I should actually do a whole thing on just that. That was a huge tool that I learned very early on. I actually was lucky that I had some very good mentors as I got started who taught me a lot of this stuff. And that was a very good tool. So if if somebody said, where should I, I would do an SCP before you do a Roth. Very, very good advice. Yeah. And then the other thing is from a protection standpoint, and I'm going to preach this, is there's, I'm going to use the term income protection. But if you get hurt while you're working or you get sick while you're working for an employer, you get short facility, right? You get continuation of your salary. Now, it's not 100%, it's 60%. You get, you know, you get a portion of your salary, but you know that you're getting that you're getting sick leave and that you're getting short-term disability pay. What would happen if you got sick, you own your own business and you cannot work? I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a story is, you know, that I'm recovering from surgery, Mm -hmm. but you don't know what. So we were at outspoken that weekend. I'm like, something's not right. Something was really off with my body. Like something's not right. Within a week, I looked six months pregnant. I looked so bloated up. It was unbelievable. I'd gone to the HU and I'm like, oh my God, I feel like, you know, something's not right. Well, fast forward, Molly. A week later, after Thanksgiving, I called my doctor in Boston. I drove there from Lake Placid, 5 a.m., got there. And there is a cantaloupe-sized tumor on my right ovary. Oh, my God, Brenda. All of this just happened. So fast forward, they find cantaloupe-sized tumor. December 23rd, literally four weeks ago, December 23rd, 
and take it out. And it was cancer. Full hysterectomy. Full hysterectomy. Like I went from running Iron Man to like not being able to walk the dog, right? Full hysterectomy, December 23rd. Stage one, no chemo. So there's a something positive to this whole story, thank goodness, right? However, on the couch, everybody in the audience has had a hysterectomy. They understand, right? The now I can have a conversation with you and sit up. Two weeks ago, I couldn't. Right. And let alone working all the time. I mean, I still get tired after a couple of hours, right? I have disability protection that I bought separately quite a while ago that pays me while I'm recovering. It's my own individual policy. You know, people hear about things like long-term care, which is also important as you get older, but this, this protects me. If I didn't have this, I am a single woman that still has to pay her mortgage and has to feed a very large Bernese mountain dog. Well, if I hadn't done that while I was healthy, because now I'm sure like I went from one day being like totally healthy when you saw me and at outspoken, I thought it was fine. And then now this, right? But as long as long as I while I am healing, I am getting paid. And thank God I set it up. Thank God. I had very good advice. I had somebody say, okay, you need to have single owner 401k and you need to do this. If nothing else, these are the two things to spend money on. Yep. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as you say, definitely, if you are a single income household and you are that income, like that is such a good point and something to really keep in mind. Yeah. And even if you aren't a single income household, but you are a household where you are a big contributor to the total household income, right? If my sister suddenly could work, I mean, that would throw a huge wrench into, into things for them because she makes, you know, she brings in a big portion, not, she's not the sole person, but she brings in a big portion and people build their budgets off of, for their families, off of two incomes. Well, what would happen if one of those incomes couldn't come in? And as business owners, we don't have an employer who is just taking care of that for us anymore. Right. Yeah. That's us. We're the employer. (laughs) Yeah. We're the employer. We're the ones that have to take care of it for ourselves. And, you know, and I didn't tell that story to, you know, oh, woe is me. I have this ovarian tumor. I told, because there is a good ending to this one, but there isn't always a good ending to it. And I am able to do what I need to do and take care of myself and keep my business running because I had very good advice to set, to take care of me and to mm-hmm. set this up. And I mean, for the athletic women listening to this, like, this is something that really I think about all the time. Like if I had a concussion, for example, that could be months where I can't look at a screen. If I break a wrist on the mountain bike, that could be weeks before I can like type my normal word count to like get my articles in. Like it's, it's a lot of fly over the handlebars (laughs) of your bike and then you can't Right. Or you get a concussion and you can't think clearly. And there's all kinds of things that can happen. And and actually, what's interesting is from um, during during our lifetimes, over 8 percent of all people 
that work, whether they work for a company or work for themselves, will end up with some disabling illness or injury where they cannot work. That's a huge percentage. Yeah. And it's scary, but it's it totally means we need to talk about it. And for women, it's even more so because we also have, you know, our if we're our own business, we're the ones on top of our maternity leave. Like we are our maternity right. leave. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly it. And so it's just as you look at the whole picture of setting up your business, it is very, very important that when you look at finances, that you see all sides of it, right? That it's managing cash, it's managing your risk, it's having your e your E&O insurance or whatever is the insurance the insurance you need for your particular industry. If it's a if it's an umbrella policy, you know, for your it, whatever it is that you have to have for whatever your business is, make sure you have protection strategy in place because if you don't then it's going to impact your finances overall. Yep. And I mean, you know, it's it's not sexy. It's not super fun, but this is the realities of owning your own business. And I think we we do a disservice when we don't discuss these things because I think, you know, then then this is how we end up in this like terrified, like head in the sand kind of thing because stuff comes up and, you know, we get the scary letter from the IRS and now we're, you know, hiding under our bed or in our closet to, uh, trying to avoid it because we're, you know, just absolutely like shocked by it. So I think thinking about this stuff early is like the smartest thing we can do. Um, so yeah. we uh, we could obviously talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but we should wrap it up here. Uh, I just wanted to ask one final question regarding taxes, since I did just mention the IRS. Um, taxes are coming up and I had in our questions here, I was like, taxes are coming up, panic, uh, which is how I feel yeah. about taxes every year. <laughs> but... Uh, so two sides to this. One is if 2022 is the first like first tax year you're filing for, so you started your business last year and you like have to do your business taxes for the first time or file as a business owner for the first time. Uh, any any tips for that? And then the second one is if 2023 is our first year in business, if we're planning on starting our business this year, what should we do to make filing our taxes next year a whole lot smoother? <laughs> yeah. um, I would say if 2022 is going to be your first year, I certainly hope that you have yourself set up as a DBA, all right, that you can file as a sole proprietor, right? Because most people are probably sole proprietor. I'm not going to answer this if you like complicated LLC stuff, right? I'm going to answer this small business stuff. And um, don't spend an inordinate amount of money on, on tax people if you don't have a lot of complicated tax issues yet, you can, I will tell you, it's so funny is I have a tax lawyer um, and my tax lawyer, his office did, did, did my taxes for me. And finally, two years ago, he's like, oh my God, you can do that. You know, tax law as well as I do, but he's like, you can do this yourself. You can file your taxes. Well, most states, like I follow all of my stuff through the state of New York and for a lot of small businesses, you can get the free software. They do what, you know, whatever, TurboTax or whatever it is. It takes you through doing your taxes. It, it's self-explanatory. What you need to make sure you have is have your DBA certificate. Make sure that you know what it is that you're going to write off. If you write off your office, know your square footage, have all of that stuff in advance. I have my square footage. I 
a long time ago, um, realized, and this was an advice of a former tax accountant, of somebody I used, I stopped calculating out all of my meal expenses and all of my travel expenses, you know, like the mileage and stuff. And I just, you can look up what is the general accounting system standard mileage amount and standard, like what's reimbursement amount, what's the standard amount on, on business travel. And then you can just use that and estimate out your number of business days that you traveled, right? Get all of that stuff in order before you start doing your taxes. If you don't have it in order, that's when you get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't need to be horribly overwhelming. You'll do a Schedule C. It'll direct you to a Schedule C. If you have things to write off, it will direct you to what are automatically input write-offs. But utilize that free software that is available to you. Make sure you're, you get... And, and so I'm assuming in 2022 that they have set themselves up as a DBA. I'm making that assumption. If we are talking to people who are just starting their businesses in 2023, number one, get your DBA certificate, get your entity set up because that will help you when you file your taxes, 2023 taxes next year in 2024. The other thing, and this is a mistake, I've seen it over and over again, even financial advisors that I work with now um, have made the same mistake. Put money into the bank account to deal with your quarterlies, whether you file quarterly or not. Not everybody does. Some people have gotten the advice to to wait till the end of the year. It depends whether you just choose to file quarterly or you choose to pay yourself. And then at the end of the year, you pay your taxes all in one fell swoop. Put estimate out what those taxes are going to be and put that money in a separate bank account and do not because if you don't have it and you owe money the the taxes and 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 extra charges the IRS puts on it, it's in or and I speak from experience like I told you I didn't know I had this like $30,000 be self-employed New York City tax right oh my god and if you end up with the taxes and the late fees and the penalties on it. Set yourself up as a DBA, get a separate bank account and calculate what those, what you estimate your taxes are going to be and just put it in a separate bank account. That's what you need to do. And then you're less afraid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then you're less afraid. The fear is, oh my God, I'm going to owe money and I don't have enough to pay. That's the fear. That's the fear. The fear is, oh, I have to file my taxes. The fear is, I'm going to file my taxes. I'm going to owe money. That's the fear. Yep, a hundred percent. And I have to say, I think what I've learned in the last couple of years is also like while the while the IRS and in Canada the CRA are scary, they're actually not that scary. Like I messed up my Canadian taxes, and the CRA was actually like lovely about it. Like. They're not actively trying to to screw you. I mean, obviously, in the case of owing thirty grand to New York City, that's just a screw. Um, but it is. It, it is. It felt a lot less like when it actually happened. I realized that I had all this emotion tied to it that didn't need to be there because, like, it wasn't like people were like mad at me or disappointed in me. It was just like, hey, you didn't do this paperwork. You need to do it and like file these things. And it gets to. 
it gets to, um, Molly, it gets full circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning. The IRS brings those emotions up. And most of those emotions are shame. I did something wrong. I didn't file the paperwork. I, I didn't know what I was doing, right? Like, and and it it brings up a heck of a lot of shame. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what I have found is there is a logical methodology to handle any, I've had the same experience. I got a notice and they were putting my passport on a hold of like, what? Over that 30 grand. And I just, I just went, okay, well, you let somebody be president who owed a lot more taxes than this, right? We can figure this out. And, and I found the resources. I reached out to a senator in my state and I said, this is not right. Here's my documentation. And they reached out to the IRS on my behalf and I got to fly to Costa Rica. But those notices can be scary, right? I call them love letters, but those notices can be scary. Just recognize that there is a methodology, a process, and a solution. But the scary is also the emotion of shame. Oh my goodness, I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. That's, oh my gosh, that's perfect. I'm so glad we got to bring that back full circle there. Um, and also, before we leave, if people want to learn more, you have a workshop coming up here. We have Get Fit With Your Finances. So tell everyone about that before we let you go. Yeah, I'm doing a workshop sort of out of demand of what we did at Outspoken um, to really demystify the finances, right? And I'm Love doing it, it in, in, in four sessions. Three are pre-recorded that I will release. I'm starting it on March 1st. And so there'll be three sessions, one on the 1st, one on the 8th, one on the 15th. Those will all be recorded for key areas that some of the stuff that we've talked about here. What are some of the areas that I know that people really have asked me questions about to help demystify it? Then the fourth session, I'm actually doing a live Q&A because people will have a lot of questions and be able to come to it, which I'll of course record and share. But um, I, I've just had so many people ask for help and I've taken all of those to- hot topics. Like what do, how do I get capital? You know, what are, what, what are the things I need to, how do I set up my business entity? What do I do with taxes? All those different things and breaking them into three one hour sessions and then a big Q&A. Oh, I love it. That's going to be amazing. So we'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes and all the information on it. And we'll keep mentioning it on our on our Instagram as it comes up, because I mean, like I say, we're we're doing this episode because we got so many questions about finances and it's I know it's such a sticking point for for so many people. So thank you so much for joining me and kind of talking through some of these uh, very emotionally charged topics. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having me as a guest. As you can tell, I could talk about this forever, but it's just because, you know, life experience. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Next episode, we'll just have to have our, uh, we'll have to have our two dogs just sitting on the cameras, just barking at each other instead of at everything. Else. I think that's a great one. Henrik loves to be guest. He shows up, puts his face <laughs> in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Amazing. I love that. Well, awesome. thank you, Molly. This has been great. Thank you. This is awesome. 
All right. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hopefully you found that episode as useful as I did. I made a billion and one notes. I had to check a bunch of things. Uh, and, you know, even though I don't actually live in the U.S. right now, I still, uh, you know, found so much value in that. And it made me check a couple of the Canadian versions of things. And it's honestly pretty similar from from place to place. So wherever you're listening to this, uh, even if, you know, you're not technically going to get a doing business as uh, um, paper or you're not going to file as an LLC, it certainly uh, pretty much every country is going to have their version of it. So it's worth checking out and, you know, talking to to an expert. But yeah, I cannot stress enough how helpful it was just going through the mindset stuff for me and kind of figuring out where some of my hangups around money come from. Uh, it was definitely interesting. I, I admit after I felt or after I filmed this episode, I chatted with my dad a bunch about it and talked to my mom a little bit about it. And, you know, we really kind of connected on some stuff. And it made me realize that a lot of my, you know, money stories are very outdated and not serving me. So definitely stuff to work on. Uh, so I have both practical and more mindset focused things that I need to do after listening to this. So thanks so much for tuning in and definitely check back next week for more of our financial health February, uh, all about kind of helping both, you know, people in small business, solopreneurs, but also even, you know, those who are working in corporate nine to five type things, uh, I think this is all really, really helpful information for helping you live your best financial life. I think financial health is one of those things that we don't think about enough when we talk about kind of our overall sense of well-being as as women. We talk about, you know, our, our fitness, our, you know, satisfaction with life. We all want the job that like, you know, feels fulfilling and stuff, but it's also okay to want to get paid. So... With that in mind, I will see you next week for another installment of the Business of Fitness podcast during Financial Health February. Have a great weekend.